Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We're physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. We're excited to welcome Claudine Lippman today. But first, we always like to check in on hot topics or what's going on in health and healthcare. So Harlan, why don't you kick us off? Yeah, I thought it might be fun, Howie. We're still in January and, and lots of people still kind of looking back on 2023 and digesting, curating, evaluating some of that data. And, and you know, as we tend to do when we start a new year. One of the things that caught my eye was a blog that came up that had seven charts that sum up U.S. healthcare in 2023. And we'll post the the link to this. Uh, I thought it was really interesting. I thought I would just kind of roll them off and see what you think of them and whether you would yeah. agree that these are sort of areas. So the number one was one that you've talked about at length, this great Medicaid unwinding that led to at least 13 million people losing coverage. And the chart that that this person, Hallie Tekov, chose was one that uh, showed actually the states. And so you, I think you've said this a bunch, but the number one state with Medicaid disenrollment? Texas. Texas, 62%. Over 1.5 million people disenrolled from Medicaid, followed by, by Florida, then California, New York, and Ohio. Of course, our highest populous states had the largest numbers of people, but Texas uh, really leading by a by a fair amount. Let, let's go. Number two was about, again, another topic that we've talked about on this show. But again, when you see it in, in a figure, it's so striking that for the first time, more than half of Medicare beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare Advantage that were really drastically shifting the, the sort of balance between this sort of fee-for-service traditional Medicare system that has existed since the inception and this sort of managed care, Medicare advantage system that everyone's seeing, you know, advertised out the gazoo on TV during the enrollment period. But but what struck me was something I'd forgotten, which was that in 2007, less than 20% of people in Medicare were in these Medicare Advantage plans. In 2023, we went to 51% for the first time. And, uh, you know, this is really a dramatic change. What do you think? Well, not only is it a dramatic change, but in 2010, you know, I typically have one or two Republican speakers in my colloquium coming to my classes. So I always, it's a good way for me to gauge how they're thinking about things. Every single one of them told me that Obamacare destroyed Medicare Advantage and we're going to pay the price for it. And I just think it's funny in retrospect, like there have rarely been things so, so wrong. Medicare Advantage has thrived since Obamacare passed. It's over 50%. It's heading higher still. And we still do not know whether it's actually more cost effective than fee-for-service Medicare. But the third one is interesting too. Employees paid more for employer-sponsored health premiums than ever before. And again, take a look at this for the, the figures showing us in 2013, $16,000. And by the time we got to 2023, up to $23,000. At $23,900, actually just about $24,000. So the annual premium for these things rose 7% year over year, higher than inflation, hitting that 24,000 mark. I think people are feeling that that pain. Uh, What do you think, Howie? Yeah, this ties in with a paper that just came out, I think even in the last week by Zeke Emanuel and others, that points out something that I've tried to point out in class for over 20 years, and that is this enormous expense means that lower income workers that are fortunate enough to have employer-sponsored health insurance are taking home lower income. 
like effectively, it really forces down the take-home income of lower wage workers because healthcare is this fixed, very high expensive cost. Um, and so every time I see this going higher, I think to myself, if you're somebody that's earning 10 or $15 an hour, let's imagine $15 an hour, you're earning less than $30,000 a year in income. If you're getting an employer-sponsored plan, let's say you're at Yale, half of your compensation may be coming in the form of, uh, of health care, and it holds down your income. Wow, that's, that's amazing. Number four, and I'll get through these rest of these pretty quick. Another topic we've talked about, the GLP-1 medications, the anti-obesity medications like Ozempic. The, the title of this one became a household name. It's, it's a figure that shows the dramatic increase in the use of these medications. But I'll tell you the thing that caught my eye, Howie, is even though they have increased dramatically, it looks like fewer than a million people were on them in 2023. And when we've got, what, 30 to 40% of Americans facing obesity, it still represents only a, the tip of the iceberg of what we'll probably will see in the future. What do you think? I, the only thing that I keep thinking about is that we, we're doing all of this so quickly and we don't know enough about long-term effects on it. And while in general, the evidence seems stronger, we do have about 10 years of data on diabetes patients on these types of drugs. I, I do. I hope people go slow and I hope people don't just assume that because they're becoming more popular that everybody should be on them. I think we should be at least a little cautious. Okay, three more quickly. Healthcare providers warmed up to AI tools. Not only have they come out and are being shown to be more and more accurate, healthcare providers, physicians are saying, yeah, they think they might have a place in clinical practice. You think we're going to see more of that? No question. I mean, you you know we're using it in small ways in big places. It's just going to grow. The last two aren't going to surprise you either. In the first full year since the Supreme Court overturned constitutional rights to abortion, more Americans lost safe abortion access. But here's the kicker to it. Actually, we haven't decreased abortions in the country either. It's just that we've lost access to safer abortions. What do you think? It is such a shame. And you talk about health equity issues. There's no greater health equity issue than reproductive rights right now, because if you're rich, you can travel the hundreds of miles you need to, to go from Texas to get an abortion. If you're poor, you cannot. Yeah. Last one, something we've talked about a little bit, but investor appetite in digital health cooled that in fact, we're in this sort of a venture capital winter for digital health. And, and as you know, the valuations of stocks that went IPO and you went public during that period have, have dropped dramatically. By the way, even anyway, I don't even need to name them for you, but thoughts about this for the future? It's fascinating, but it's predictable. When the cost of money goes up, uh, investors become more cautious. That's it. But also the S&P went up dramatically. Health tech declined. Yeah, because health tech right now has no return. So people are betting on the future, whereas the S&P, you're actually investing in existing earnings. It may not be the wisest move, but it's definitely the short-term logical move. So that, that's great. That's a quick rundown on those, those seven. Hey, Howie, let's, let's get to our guest, Claudine Lippmann. Claudine Lippmann is the executive director of the Yale New Haven Hospital Center for Outcomes Research and Evaluation, also known as CORE, working and collaborating with our own Dr. Krumholtz, the founder and director. CORE is a leading national outcomes research center dedicated to transforming healthcare for the betterment of people and society by leveraging data, analytics, and technology. Prior to working for Yale New Haven Hospital, Claudine founded Gendron Design and Innovation, which focuses on using data and human-centered design to elevate healthcare business processes, products, 
culture, and experiences. A designer by training, Claudine spent over a decade at VSA as a partner and design practice lead, leading multidisciplinary teams and working on design strategy initiatives for clients as diverse as IBM, Bloomberg, and Nike. Claudine holds two degrees in design from Cégep de Sherbrooke in Quebec and the School of Visual Arts in New York. She holds an MBA from the Yale School of Management, which is when I first met her. And Claudine, you and I have talked about this briefly, but I just want to get you to tell the, the arc, the narrative, the story, because our executive MBA program does have this healthcare track. You came in through the healthcare track. And as I understand it, you were designed first, and then because of personal experiences in your family, you started to become much more interested in healthcare and you applied design to healthcare. And then you decided to do our MBA program at Yale. And I'm curious to hear about how you got to that point and what the program did for you in helping to move your career to pivot, as I like to describe it, to where you are right now. Absolutely. Well, as a designer, you're trained to basically solve business problems, variety of business problems. And may that be an experience, may that be a a strategy, a go-to-market strategy. So as a designer, we were touching different types of industries. And as you said, my, my son got sick when he was about three. And as a parent, it was just a very difficult thing to navigate and to understand how to make informed decisions and how to move forward with feeling confident in the decisions that we were making as parents. So as a designer, that's actually when I decided that at some point in my career, I would take my design skills and apply them in the healthcare industry. And in order to do that well, you actually have to understand an industry deeply. And in areas like operations, economics, even just like understand the flows and, and how decisions actually happen within that industry. And so you have the instincts of how to do that as a designer and, and you may become an expert in a specific industry, but I was really eager to learn more about healthcare in order for me to understand the right tenets and philosophy so I could be effective as a designer in the healthcare space. So it was a passion. And to have the right tools and learn the right, you know, best practices, I learned about the healthcare program at Yale through this AIG program uh, that's called Business Perspective for Creative Leaders. So this is how I learned about the AMB program, how I get to meet some of the teachers, you in particular, Howie, and others through that program. And I just knew that that was the way that I could gain that business acumen specific to the healthcare system for me to be an effective an inspiring designer in, in that space. Can you speak to the, the moment that you realized that you would leave pure design with an emphasis on healthcare and decide to get more immersed in healthcare with an emphasis on design, let's say? I So through my personal experience in navigating the, the healthcare system as a, as a patient, as a human being, I, I, I was seeing more needs than in other industries, perhaps. It felt to me like if it come from the experience itself, the products, right, the interactions, I just saw a tremendous amount of need for better design solutions, right? And I'll interchange design and business solution in whatever needed to happen, right, to have an impact on people's lives in these different interactions. Um, And again, that I think for me was a challenge. I really saw for me there 
a passion and a desire to really have impact on people's lives. And I was able to do that in different industries in my career, but I really wanted to move towards that specific area as I felt like it was a, a more direct interaction and impact on, on people. Um, and I was just at a point in my career where I really want to make sure that everything I did on an everyday basis had an impact on society, which is also what inspired me for the, the choice of the school and the choice of core eventually. One of the things we've talked about is is sort of the, the lack of design within healthcare itself in the sense that it's sort of grown organically. It's optimizing for features that that may not have been the same features you would choose if you said, I want to design this system so that it is produces the best results for patients in society. It, and that's in some ways what we talk about on the show a lot around the incentives that are embedded and the way in which the, our systems are configured, the way that patients interact with it, the way that, that staff, physicians, clinicians, everyone, all healthcare professionals interact. And so what the result that we're getting from the current system is a stagnation or even reversal of health outcomes a burnout among people who are participating as staff, a dissatisfaction of the experience of it by patients. Is this a clarion call for someone with design skills to come in and help? I do believe so. It certainly is an element. And I do believe that being able to integrate design capabilities, may that be in a hospital, in a group that you know, is is specialist into looking at these different types of solution for healthcare settings. I do believe it brings a different layer of if you're able to really focus on the human-centered aspect of these experiences and products. And we also have grown as consumer to really consume information in a very intuitive way, right? Products are designed in such a ways, experiences are designed in such a ways. It just hasn't gotten that at that level in some of the healthcare settings. And, and therefore, I do believe that there would be great benefits gained for both providers and patient if more focused on these design solutions could be integrated. So just one follow-up to that is, you know, you spent a lot of time talking to people in health systems, especially as you were doing your EMBA and trying to decide what your next steps would be. What, what do you think needs to happen? Because from my perspective, it, it's needed, but the demand on the health system side and, and on the medical care side isn't really there because it's an externality for most of them. I mean, it doesn't interfere with their business. The, the waiting rooms are full. Their, you know, their revenues are coming in. There's not the, the same kind of need that you may have experienced when you were working with businesses who had to continue to delight customers in order to maintain their, their standing within in their field. And for many healthcare systems, I mean, they're just trying to figure out how to handle the demand of patient care and they're not under any pressure to, to evolve that way. What do you think needs to happen to get them to pay attention? Well, I think when you have needs and you don't have demand, you know, part of this is to be able to, if you're unable to show the potential ROI, maybe it is about showing what may, may be the waste, the waste that you would save almost, or that you wouldn't experience by changing your approach. So I think through my experience, a lot of these conversations are all about being able to identify the potential benefits of integrating design philosophies and processes inside healthcare. It's not always easy, but sometimes it is just about making sure that the right observations are being done. It is about the negative space of what a patient may go through and what is not being told and not being captured in some of the more basic data that one would expect from, from that experience. 
So, you know, it's a challenge. But again, anywhere where you have needs and non-demand, I think it's a, the ability to articulate the potential benefits. And I think a lot of that is through really good data visualization and the, being able to explain the ROI. And when ROI is not tangible, is what you can actually save and not waste. Easier said than done, but I, I think that's doable. My, my one experience with this field, probably not my one experience, but the one that, that stays in my mind the most is when we renovated the emergency room about 10 years ago or a little more than that. And around that time, right after it had been done, or maybe it was being done, Jonathan Feinstein, who is a professor in the School of Management, uh, was teaching a design class, even though I think he comes from a finance accounting background. He was teaching a design class because I think the students wanted it. And one of the modules was healthcare. They came over to look at the ER. And even though I'd been involved in the renovation and watching it happen, I had not understood how many design features were put in place for that emergency room renovation, a complete renovation, by the way, gutted and started from scratch, basically. There, there are several features of it that continue to make eminent sense and they're beautiful. You know, the fact that the ambulance bay lines up with the the major trauma rooms and that those rooms line up with my department radiology is a beautiful design feature that you would, you like having. But some of the things are disappointing to me in that we've never fulfilled the, the, the promise of them. Things like being able to chip stretchers and patients and, and uh, equipment so that we can track them easily and always know where people are. To this day, we lose patients. To, and, and there are ways through all the doors to be able to track where people moved without completely encroaching on their privacy. But we lose patients. Patients walk off for an hour or two hours. It's amazing. I'm wondering, like, are we doing enough to, to fulfill the promise of our design once we've put it in place? Or are we failing because we're putting physicians and managers in charge at that point and not maintaining the involvement of designs? I think that's probably right to say. I do believe that a constant design eye and the iteration based on the observations being made is important over time. I think what's especially challenging with physical spaces is the aspect of prototyping. It is very difficult, right, to put in place a prototype of a new space being redesigned and test it, right? There's so much infrastructure and dollars that go into it. It's a really hard thing to test. Now, you would imagine, and not knowing how the design process went about, the importance then to being able to really, really articulate and, and document and analyze what are the main constraints that are gonna be inevitable in redesigning the space? Where are the priorities? And who are the stakeholders, right, that have the greatest needs? Because at, at the end of the day, I don't believe any design is perfect. But you will, you will have constraints and needs that will, that will override others. And to be able to use those as your design guidance almost, right, the things that you will make sure, regardless of the material, the space you have, or the interactions to happen, that those are the ones serves first. That's, again, much easier said than done, but... There is a way to go about it to make sure that there are certain features of a space that get addressed as priority versus others that may not be as important and impactful on that experience. But it's prototyping space is probably the most challenging. And, and what do you, when you say prototyping, what do you mean by that? If you design a digital product, it's somewhat easy 
to be able to design the platform, making sure that the digital interactions, you can put you can put a, a mobile app right in the hands of a, of a user and see how they're tracking or they're understanding how what to click, how to click, right. how to you know how to go about interacting with that tool versus a space that's 3D and physical. And again, like if you think of a hospital setting even more, uh, it's very difficult to be able to prototype those. Now, certain institutions were able to do that in the past, right? And they were really testing their ER, testing the, the patient exam rooms. Uh, so there's a degree of that being done, but that story is not unique how we have heard that many, many times about reconfigurations and redesigns of spaces in the healthcare space. You know, Howie, I, I met first met Claudine, you know, through the EMBA program and immediately I thought, gosh, this person is out of uh, amazing, you know, off the charts, amazing. And, and was able to get her involved in core actually with Erica Spatz. We taught a, a course to undergraduates about how to sort of design solutions in healthcare. She came into core and helped us think about how we were organized. She worked in that way as a consultant. We had someone who'd been an executive director for many years, Jennifer Matera, who'd been a, a wonderful partner for me since we started core, but was thinking about retiring. And I was able to entice Claudine to join us in a leadership role as executive director at core. But Claudine, here's what I want to ask you. You know, what was it that drew you to core? Like also sort of a very different direction for you. And what are your hopes for it in the future? Two things I think I would prioritize about what attracted me at core. Uh, The mission, which is very important to me. And I believe very important to the community that's at core today and that will be at core tomorrow. And again, I, I, that has always been a criteria for me. What, what does the organization believe in? So that was very important. Secondly, people. Again, companies have capabilities. They have different business strategies. Um, but if you have the people who are visionary, motivated, uh, they're experts in their field and are willing to change and transform what they wake up, you know, for every day, that matters a lot. That, that to me is the, um, is really the most attractive feature of core. And Um, and maybe, maybe just for a second, you could just, just explain to people what core is again, just so that we're, we're clear for folks listening. Absolutely. Core is a group of experts, clinicians, analysts, researchers that really come together to, you know, solve a lot of business problems in the healthcare space, that would be my language, but we, we do a lot of work for CMS um, and our groups are uh, for, for community within core, specialists into quality measurement. And we've done this work for decades now. CMS being the government group that is in charge of Medicare and Medicaid. Correct. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. And so that group in particular really focuses on quality measurement where other groups are top-notch experts in different areas of science, and they're doing research on these particular areas. And and all together, we're really working towards advancing impact in the healthcare community and for patients and providers as well. So I think that it's been it's been a bit of a challenge not being all you know together physically over the last few years, but I do believe that the connective tissue that brings people at core and that keep people at core. Uh, is this idea that we are truly informing policies and quality um, in healthcare? Why do you describe it as a business problem? I mean, this is, I think, by the way, the great thing, you're bringing a different perspective in on it. And I do think at its root, it's a business problem. Howie probably thinks that because of the perspective he brings. But 
But why do you call it business problems? I do believe that the, the intersection between the business and the design aspect of what we do is the power of what we do. And I do believe that the way in which our experts go about doing the work that they do, they go beyond just delivering on that work. They actually take into account the stakeholders. They do take into account the long-term impact. They do take into account a lot of the aspects that are not perhaps inner scope, but that together actually go beyond and, and making sure that the solutions that we deliver go even further in impacting healthcare as an industry. And for me, if I take it back to my, my role within CORE, even in how we think about organizing our teams, what are going to be the types of capabilities that we want to put forward, all those go again beyond just the substance of what we do. And it, it really goes into the how uh, we go about helping our partners and the people that we do work for and with to really deliver solutions that are, again, beyond just the scope of what we do and that actually have a tremendous impact on the industries at large. What's your hope for the next five years? I mean, so you're in core. What, what, what do you hope happens as a result of sort of bringing this design perspective, the business sensibility into this sort of academic think tank that's trying to drive solutions within healthcare? My hope is that internally to be able to integrate more design principles in what we do every day. And I'll expand on that a little bit. If as planners, right, because we're, there are plans in everything that we do, we're technically designing every day. And in our design process, if we're able to implement design principles in how we go about designing solutions, those design principles should be helping all of us inside a core to design solutions that are more efficient, implementable, and user-centered design. I think that the, the processes, right, the, the, there's so many design processes out there, design thinking, agile, whatnot, they're, and they're all very important and viable. But if we're able to really dissect and being able to implement what are the actual tenants that inform these design process so that as we do our planning and our work and the, the scope of what we do every day, we are able to put solutions there that, law, that are more long-term efficient and implementable and user-centered design. I really do think that that's where the, the impact will continue to evolve and grow. Uh, and that's my hope. That is my hope that moving forward in the future, patients and providers have the opportunity to go through journeys and experiences, interact with products and dashboards and information that is designed for them to consume and use uh, and, and put to good use right in their day-to-day -day journey. So that is, that is my hope. And while it's not necessarily easy for see the direct connection, I think you and I, Harlan, see it. I think that's what you know. You and I saw in, in, in common in one another as well, the ability to bring science and design together to create a better healthcare. And I do believe that at CORE, we have the expert and the passion to do that. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for joining Yale. It's almost exactly seven years since you first stepped foot on this campus uh, for that group interview session. And uh, we're so thankful for that and uh, so thankful that you continue to work with Harlan. Same here. Thank you so much to the two of you who've had a great uh, influence in my career. And, and um, I couldn't be more grateful for that, uh, Howie and Harlan. So thank you very much. Thanks so much for joining us, Claudine. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Hey, that was a terrific interview, Howie. I'm so 
glad that we had her on and, and got to hear her perspectives, especially, you know, the importance of design in healthcare. But let's get to your segment now. What's on your mind? Yes, this is just interesting. Maybe it's a little too wonkish, but the FDA issued a sort of reprimand letter to Novartis this week regarding what they saw as misleading advertisement for a drug called Kiskali. This is a drug that is used to treat a particular form of breast cancer. The FDA explained that in the TV ad, which aired in 2022, by the way, that it had overstated the benefits of this drug in terms of patients' quality of life. This is a six-page letter dated January 18th for our listeners, uh, but they make clear that Novartis violated the principles of direct-to-consumer advertising as laid out in the original legislation and regulation. And I want to point out this dates back, this is in the legislation from 1962. It's been revised over time. And you should also, for our listeners, know that we, along with New Zealand, are the only countries in the world, to the best of my knowledge, that allow for direct-to-consumer advertising of drugs. It's free speech, but it's regulated. The FDA has a fairly spotty record of holding firms accountable for their ads and promotional materials. In the last seven years, the most number of letters they've issued was seven, although in 1998, 156 letters were issued. Last year, it was just four. And as I mentioned, we have one letter so far this year. And the TV admonishments are rarer still. And it may be the case that maybe the earlier large number of letters has led to better practice and, and better compliance with the law. But it does turn out that the FDA has limited reach in these regards. By the time the FDA gets around to reviewing and responding to ads, they can already be off the airways. And the FDA does not require that they get to review ads before they are aired. There are a lot of requirements around direct-to-consumer advertising. You have to make sure that if the drug name is mentioned, for instance, you have to be able to talk specifically about all the risks and contraindications. But suffice it to say that the companies do know how to comply. And in this instance, Novartis does appear to have gone beyond the actual data and evidence in making a statement of improved quality of life for these patients when the data just wasn't quite there. So Novartis has an opportunity to respond to this letter, but more importantly, I hope and I think that the reason why the FDA is so committed to sending out a letter like this is to just try to get companies to remember that they have this obligation to the public to be honest about both the benefits and the risks and contraindications. It does seem to me like we could do a lot better in these these ads, the communications, the way they, they drive you crazy when they come on, they're flashy. The side effects go by so fast, you can't really grasp them. And and they're not really presenting information to inform people. I mean, they've got people dancing or showing, you know, this is what a happy patient looks like who's on this med. I bet a lot of people watching them don't even know what the med's for. Some people who do, you know, it's, it, it, I, it, I think it's a predicament that we're in, you know, it's sort of like these should be informative. Maybe, maybe they do need some more regulation. I think we need more study of them. You know, what actually... But, but the companies must believe they're driving sales or they wouldn't be doing it. The evidence is really, yeah. The marketing evidence. Is strong? Yeah, the marketing evidence is strong. Direct-to-consumer advertising pays for itself. Wow, that's interesting. Yep. Well, thanks for bringing that up to you, Howie. Yeah, something we should keep our eye on. Thanks. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, we hope you can now find us on threads. Yeah, we're going to try threads. I'm at... H-A-R-L-A-N-K-R-U-M. That's Harlan Crumb. I, I should have come up with something better. I you can still change it, I think. 
All right. Okay, maybe I will. <laughs> and I'm at the foreman. That's at... Which is much better. That's much better. Well, it was, a, it was something that my father and I created many years ago. But at the foreman, that's at number four, M-A-N, T-H-E, number four, M-A-N. You can also continue to email us at health.veritas.el.edu. And, and in addition to threads, we're still on Twitter we're still here, and we'd love to interact with you on LinkedIn if you're on that platform. Uh, in addition to all that, I'm fortunate to be the faculty director of the Healthcare Track, founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email or reach out to our website at som.yale.edu EMBA. Health and Veritas is produced for the Yale School of Management and the Yale School of Public Health. Thanks to our researchers, Inez Gil and Sophia Stone and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer, extraordinary people that we have the privilege of working with week in, week out. For sure. Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks very much, Harlan. Talk to you soon.